Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Abby Pluff, and I'm so glad you're here. This is the show where I explore inclusive heathenry as a queer woman. We will be talking about traditional witchcraft, runes, folklore, and so much more. Join us, won't you, as we journey to the ends of the Nine Realms and back. Hello, witchlings, and welcome back to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I am so excited to share another interview with you today. It is with my dear friend, Calden, who recently came out with a book called The Crooked Path, An Introduction to Traditional Witchcraft. So this is a little bit different from what we have done so far on the podcast in that Calden isn't really a Norse practitioner. However, I do think that what he talks about in The Crooked Path is very applicable to what we do as heathens. So we'll talk a lot about what traditional witchcraft even is in the podcast, but we'll also be spending a lot of time talking about spirit guides, uh, traveling to the other worlds, and um, just kind of some general pagan stuff. I will warn you all to start out with that I had had a lot of coffee before doing this interview, so I am definitely flying, um, but I think that it works in the end. And honestly, I was just so nerdy and excited to be talking to Keldon on the podcast. So um, yeah, without further ado, I am actually just going to jump right into this and we will touch base at the end of the podcast about um kind of the uh, rune altar challenge that is happening over on instagram we will be talking about um some general stuff so i am actually going to just uh let some ads role, you know, that hashtag sponsored content. Um, And then we'll get straight into the interview. Needfire Wellness and Apothecary is committed to offering high quality supplies, information, and learning experience for magic practitioners. The Needfire team believes that magic practice is an internally enriching and transformative endeavor that can look very different dependent on the practitioner. Needfire pays particular care to offering opportunities for learning and practicing Nordic folk magic and folk roots tradition. And I'm so thrilled about this personally, but Needfire Wellness recently expanded to offer an online esoteric apothecary, spell work, and magical resource shop. I love them so much, and I am so excited to share that love with you. Head on over to needfirewellness.com and use code HEATHENJOURNEYPODDEN at checkout for 10% off your purchase of materials or classes. Again, the code is HEATHENJOURNEYPODDEN, P-O-D-D-E-N, for 10% off your purchase. Enjoy and make magic wildly. All right, here we are. Well, welcome to the podcast, Keldon. 
gosh, thank you for having me. I'm so exciting. I'm so excited to have you on. Um, So real talk, I just finished your book this morning, The Crooked Path, An Introduction to Traditional Witchcraft. So um, obviously things are very fresh. And I have to say, I've read a lot of introductory witchcraft books, you know, through my time, even though like I personally don't, you know, necessarily need intro books anymore at this point. I still do read them because I have a lot of students who may be looking for new resources. And so it's kind of like good to keep up on it. And I think that this is probably my favorite intro to witchcraft book that I've ever read. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Thank you. You're welcome. Well, the reason I loved it is that um, you have this lovely... I'm just going to keep gassing you up. So you have this lovely um, uh, basis in history um, as well as practical application. And at the same time, I mean, this is a book about traditional witchcraft. We don't even need to talk about this on the podcast. Um, but, you know, like, you don't go into Wicca bashing or, like, right. other magic thing bashing, you know? Like, you don't right. bash, like ceremonial magic or new age or like anything in this book. And it's just really lovely. It's just like, all right, this is a thing that I know about. I know about traditional witchcraft and I'm going to share that with you. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate that. Well, thank you. Yeah. That was a really big, um, a really key part in writing this book or like why I wanted to write this book was around traditional witchcraft's long kind of feudal, um, relationship with Wicca and some of the books that have been written are really prone to Wicca bashing. Um, that's something you certainly see a lot of like in online communities. And I was just like, that's really dumb. Like, let's not do that. It's really tired and old and I think stems from a lot of misinformation and stereotypical thinking. So. Yeah. And I think on both parts, right. You know, so like people, this isn't going to be a podcast episode about this, I promise. But like, I, I do think that people tend to bash Wicca who don't know very much about it. Absolutely. And who maybe just read, you know, like some super basic texts on Wicca or who feel like it's too, I don't know, like wooey, but realizing that, you know, Gerald Gardner was actually, uh, initiated into the OTO at one point and like knew Alistair Crowley and like, you know, he was in the mix with a lot of ceremonial magicians at the time. It makes Wicca make a lot more sense. And it also makes a lot more sense why there would be an answer to Wicca in, you know, like traditional witchcraft where you want to get back to folk magic or um, you want to get back to uh, non-ceremonial magic in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. So let's start there. What, um, for our listeners, um, what is traditional witchcraft as you define it? I define traditional witchcraft as a broad umbrella term, right? This is not just one singular path, but it's a collection of paths. And those are paths that are non-Wiccan. So... They take their inspiration from pre-Wiccan sources, uh, although that's always a tricky area to to kind of box in 
really harshly, um, but essentially non-Wiccan practices. And those are practices that are inspired by folklore, as we just talked about a little bit. Um, that's actually where I see the traditional part of traditional witchcraft coming in is not that um, these are like standard um, static age-old practices, but that we're practicing and pulling from traditions of folklore. Um, so inspired by folklore, also containing three essential elements, working with magic, and that's usually through folk magic, very operative um, spells and charms. Again, kind of pulling from the past, but creating it into a way that is fitting with modern life. Working with the other world, working with a whole host of different spirits. So familiar spirits, fetch spirits, spirits of the land, ancestors, and then the third part is working with the natural landscape. So working with the dirt and the earth below your feet, connecting with the lake, the local plants and stones, the spirits that live therein, and all of that good stuff. And that's actually where I want to kind of focus a lot of our conversation today is on working with the spirits of the land as well as working with the pagan other worlds. Because I felt like a really big strength of your book was kind of talking about how do we define the pagan other worlds and how do we begin to engage with spirits in a way that is safe for beginners. I know that a lot of introductory books, um, this may not be as true in traditional witchcraft, but I know that a lot of introductory books really shy away from spirit realm stuff in part because it's like, how are you going to be safe, you know, when you're doing Mm -hmm. stuff in the pagan other worlds? So I really appreciated that about this, that you don't really shy away from that. Um, So what is your own kind of like personal experience with spirits, if you feel comfortable answering? It's been a long one. Um, I started... (laughs) encountering different spirits as a child. Um, I've talked about this in a few different places. Um, I talked about in the book is that as a child, I spent so much time outside in the woods next to my house. Um, I was just thinking about this the other day and just reflecting on like how much like those particular woods really forged my spirit and who I am as a person and a witch. But I spent all my time out there and I didn't really have a lot of friends growing up. Um, And so I made friends with the spirits and those were spirits of the trees and the rocks. Um, But there were also encounters with the fair folk with the overall genus loci. And from there, that's where I really learned kind of my first lessons in magic and witchcraft and also just being somebody who has one foot in this world and one foot in the other. As I grew up, um, those relationships continued. Um, Eventually, I encountered my familiar spirit um, and that's actually been probably my longest lasting relationship with the spirit. Um, so that's kind of a kind of a brief 
look into the relationship with spirits that I've had. Uh, it's been a long one and it's has moments of uh, being very mysterious, I guess. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, it's a very personal question too. So I, you know, like that's not necessarily something that you want to answer in depth. So I appreciate you giving the depth that you did. Um, let's talk a little bit. You mentioned your familiar spirit. Um, yes. So obviously if you read uh, fiction or folk tales or anything about witches, you've probably encountered the term familiar spirit, uh, especially if you read any accounts of the witch trials in mm-hmm. both in Europe and then in um, the United States and Canada you will encounter witches discussing their familiar spirit and sending their familiar on, I just blanked on the word, (laughs) sending their familiar on uh, tasks to complete for them or little quests. And that was actually one of the things that really sparked a lot of fear in, you know, era, the witch trial eras. So let's talk about what exactly a familiar spirit is. Mm-hmm. So a familiar spirit is, in the broadest terms, a attendant spirit. It is a spirit who forms a strong relationship with a witch. Um, so these spirits could be anything, um, fairies, angels, demons, ghosts, some other variation there in between. Um, you find different, you find different examples throughout confession material of of all different spirits being encountered. Um, so essentially, it's more. It's not. Um, I don't see it necessarily as a title that belongs to a specific um, type of spirit, in the sense of like being like an angel or a demon or something like that, but that it's a title for a relationship. Yeah. It's like the working relationship that you have with a spirit is a bond of familiarship. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is a great point too, that, I mean, the word itself, right? Like familiar can mean a close relationship. It can also mean a servant, um, which I think is interesting in that then that kind of opens up the conversation around the, the, re- the relationship itself and the dynamic that exists there because sometimes you find examples of uh, witches whose familiar acts very much as a servant. It's that you are here to serve me. You're here to do tasks for me. You're here to do what I say. Um, but then you find examples of familiars who act more as guides and teachers. Um, and really, uh, I think even in the, in the former sense, it, it might appear that the familiar is being subservient, but really there's always going to be an underlying symbiotic element to that relationship where the witch offers something in return. Um, 
Yeah, you offer uh, spirit food or housing. I loved the passages in the book where, or the exercise in the book where you talk about, all right, create a home for your familiar, leave crystals or trinkets or whatever they ask for, whatever they Mm -hmm. like um, around so that you are, you have a symbiotic relationship is exactly how you can think about it. Mm -hmm. I also think that that is a very important and distinct definition from, you know, animal guides or Mm -hmm. uh, particularly animals that are living that we may have as our pets or that we may Mm -hmm. have around us that do assist in magic. Those are, Mm -hmm. I know people who definitely do use their pets in magic or their pets do lend energy to their rituals. But it's not necessarily a familiar spirit relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, that's something that comes up a lot for people is that, you know, my pet is my familiar. And I'm definitely, I'm not somebody who would ever be like, oh, that's not true. Like your cat is not a familiar. Um, <laughs> because I think that part of it is that that word and that concept has grown Um And it's evolved and changed. And so now kind of these pets, um, these magical pets have been kind of brought into the fold of what a familiar is. Um, And I think that there's space for that. That's why I prefer, like, like I often will say familiar spirit versus just like familiar um, to kind of make that distinction without being like, oh, your pet doesn't count. Because one thing to think about is that, you know, pets are spirits. They contain a spirit. Um, and, right, they have a, they have a spirit inside them. Um, <laughs> and that's a very powerful relationship. When you have a pet that shows that inclination towards magic, um, that's something that's important. And people have argued too that, well, is it possible that that familiar spirit has become embodied in, in that living animal? And sure. Like, I think that could be possible. I think just about anything's possible. Um, so I think the definition is, is open to interpretation. Um, but with the knowing that in traditional witchcraft, we are talking about a non corporeal, spirit. Exactly. Exactly. And I do think too, that there's a little bit of a difference between just, um, kind of like offhandedly, right. Um, assigning the title of familiar to your pet, um, Mm -hmm. and really deeply working with them because, you know, I do know people who deeply work with their pets magically. Mm -hmm. My cat, for instance, whenever I'm working with a student on ancestral issues or I'm taking a class about uh, ancestral, like, pandemic veneration right now, Mm -hmm. he barges down the door and is just super present for any conversation that I have about ancestor worship. And Mm -hmm. it's really interesting. Like, that's something that he wants to be a part of. He doesn't really care about... I don't know, hexing or like abundance magic, like any of that stuff. He's just really into the dead. (laughs) Um, Cool. I love that. So I'm trying to think like, 
I loved your also kind of talk about the pagan other worlds as long as we're talking about spirits, the spirit realm. Um, for listeners who may not be as familiar with uh, the pagan other worlds, how do you kind of conceptualize them? Mm-hmm. And also understanding so, that the pagan, sorry, and also understanding that the pagan other worlds are, um, they change a lot based on the culture that you're in. Yep. I think they change a lot on the culture that you're in, but also like on your own personal experiences. One thing I note in the book is that, I mean, you could venture into the other worlds and, and see it one way and then come back later and it's completely different. Um, it's so fluid and, and ever changing that it's kind of hard to, to map, um, in a way that's very, um, stable, I guess. (laughs) Um, however, with that being said, you find a lot in, in different cultures and certainly this is true in, in witchcraft is that we can loosely define it into three realms. Um, So there's an upper world, a mid world, and a lower world. And the terms for those worlds change. Um, But essentially the way that, that I conceptualize it is that there's this upper world and that's the place where the gods live. It's a place of higher intellect, of your super consciousness, of your psychic faculties. Um, then there is the midworld, and that is our physical realm as we exist right now in the spaces that we are in. Um, it is a place of all things physical and material, um, but there's also a hidden landscape to it, and that's where those nature spirits the spirits of the midworld reside. So the land whites, the genus loci, the fair folk, um, they live in the midworld, but in this hidden landscape that is parallel to where we are. Um, and then there's the lower world, the underworld, and this is where the ancestors live. This is the realm of intuition and dreams, of emotions. This is not to say that those different types of spirits can't exist in in different worlds. Like, obviously, we know that there are gods of the underworld. There are, um, you know, nature spirits that perhaps live in the the upper world or things like that. Um, But I think these are realms where you're more likely to find these spirits. And then the three worlds are often centered on the Axis Mundi, the world tree. um, And you find examples of that in in different cultures. Obviously, we know in Norse. Yes. The tree whose name I always feel like I pronounce wrong. Yggdrasil. (laughs) Yggdrasil. I was like, I was like, say it for me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We Um, we have weird vowels and. It's okay. (laughs) That's just just proof that that's not my realm of expertise. Uh, But even like (laughs) things like too, like, I mean, I look at like, for example, like in, in Greek mythology, like, like Mount Olympus could be seen as a world tree, right? Like the gods live atop Mount Olympus. The kind of humans live around the base of the mountain and then the spirits, the underworld exists underneath the mountain. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that the Axis Mundi very clearly, depending on what culture that you're in, it shifts format. The Norse have a really, Yggdrasil Mm -hmm. and all of its nine realms are really interesting in just how we conceptualize of it because based on, you know, what has been written down, you can actually make maps of Yggdrasil, like really detailed maps. And you could even create uh, sort of a a materia magica for the things that reside in different realms based on like what has come up. So that understanding Yggdrasil is a really interesting guide for any heathens or other Norse practitioners who want to Mm -hmm. access the pagan other worlds. And at the Mm -hmm. same time, I think that, I believe, isn't it in... Irish, where the three realms are land, sea, and sky, mm-hmm. rather than middle, under, and upper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff out there. A lot of Very- different uh, kind of correspondences and similarities. Yeah. Let's talk about how we can move between the other worlds. First of all, obviously, how you can journey safely if it's your first time checking out the pig and other worlds or going into the lands of the unseen, as well as just kind of what to expect there. Take it away. So in terms of safety, I think it's, <laughs> I'm not sure it'll ever be completely safe. Um, that's something right. that's come up a lot lately, actually, where people have been talking about or asking about like this idea of like safely engaging with spirits, safely engaging with the other world. And it's not to say that like you can't take precautions or, or be safe. Um, but I think, I think that the sense that like you could do those things without there being any type of danger, um, is, is a little untrue or maybe foolish even, Um, Do you think that as witches, we kind of need to accept a certain level of danger in what we uh, do? And also a certain level of responsibility, too. Absolutely. So I recommend to people, like, if it is your first journey, is that you don't venture too far. Um, So I talk in the book about how you can connect to your own world tree, your own conceptualization of that access mundi and form a relationship with it as kind of your home base in the other worlds. And that when you start journeying, you don't venture too far from that tree. Um, just like if you are going on your first hike in the woods, you don't, you know, go off the path and just keep walking. Um, you stay relatively close to your starting point and slowly get to know that landscape. Same thing with the other worlds. Um, yeah, I mean, it's you're creating a relationship with the land in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, when you go hiking in a new area or whatever and you really want to get to know it, and it, the same is true of the other worlds, you are creating a relationship with that place. Right. You slowly want to explore as you become comfortable Um, because it is unknown. There's, I mean, infinite depths to the other worlds. Um, and it's not that I think, uh, you know, you'll get lost and never be able to return, but 
I think that there are consequences for that. Um, and in terms of spirits, um, I always encourage people to think about working with spirits, like working with people, um, be, be mindful. Um, you know, like if you encounter a spirit in the other world, use your common sense and your intuition to feel for, is this a spirit that I want to engage with? Or is this a spirit that I want to avoid? Right. Just like if you were walking in the park and you see somebody like, does that person seem sketchy to you? Or is that like, Oh, Hey, that looks like a nice person that maybe I want to say hi to, uh, be kind. Um, don't be rude. Also, I mean, just have, I think, uh, before even venturing into the other world, having some sort of knowledge of what you're likely to encounter there and what kind of spirits you're going to encounter with. Uh, I always liken this to like, if you're going to a foreign country or you're going into a space that is um, populated by a culture that you don't belong to, is it's probably good to know like some of their do's and don'ts, right? So you're not walking into that space doing something that's totally inappropriate. Um, I think that's especially true with the fair folk. Um, oh my God, yes. Like, know, know what you're getting into the best you can, because sometimes that's not always possible. Um, but also understand that not all spirits have your best interest in mind. Uh, I think also you can kind of look at it, you know, you said, be polite, be kind to spirits mm-hmm. when you meet them in the other world. Think about it as you're going into their house. Yep. You are Absolutely. visiting them. So the mm-hmm. honor falls on you to... Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of uphold your side of that relationship. Right. But you said research a bit about the kind of spirits that you might be likely to meet there. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that and where people might find resources for learning about the different spirits? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really excellent contemporary books being written about, about different spirits. Um, if I was super prepared, I would be like, oh yeah, here's a list. Um, oh, for sure. You can also send them to me and I can put them in the show notes too. (laughs) Okay. Excellent. Um, But look to folklore. I mean, look to folk tales, fairy tales. I mean, that's the best place in my opinion to look is to look into old myths and stories about spirits and people encountering spirits. Look at what they did and what they didn't do. Um, You know, like just off the top of my head, like I remember things from childhood that like we even just told in my family, like when we were out playing outside is like, you don't step on like a mound of moss because that's a fairy house and they'll get mad at you. You don't. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, so you had a lot of that like lived tradition experiences. That's really cool. Yeah. And I don't necessarily know where that came from. I just know that like as a child, we talked a lot about fairies um in my family um and there was a lot of stories um not that i don't want to make it seem like i have this like family tradition of you know like fairy faith but um <laughs> right or any, yeah or anything like that we just had a lot of stories um 
but you know things like like mushroom circles and things like that um you know if you want to if you want to know if there are fairies around you put up little silver bells if you you know if you want to ask a favor of them you leave out milk and honey um things like that um so again i think fairy tales and folklore are going to be your best place to learn about spirits um and there's i mean there's a lot and you know now i'm just trying to think off the top of my head like i know there's like lots of like books where it's almost like dictionaries of different spirits um like i think judica illis has one um she does um yeah she does i know that depending on the your uh ancestry and tradition there are also you know, Absolutely. compendiums of spirit work. Uh, that actually kind of leads nicely into one of my other questions for you. And this is maybe more so like opinions that okay. do not appear in the book, but that I'm just curious and that I think about all the time. So, right, we are two people. You have more of that, you know, English magic sort of yep. ancestry. And I have more of the Norse ancestry, Germanic um, so for me, I always envisual, I always visualize going to the pagan other worlds as being a part of my understanding and journeying through the nine realms of Yggdrasil. Mm-hmm. That looks really different. So culturally, if I'm like going in there, uh, I'm way more likely to either notice or pay attention to sprites or fae or other creatures that come from Norse pantheon. So trolls Mm -hmm. or uh, dwarves, that kind of thing, more Mm -hmm. so than like the Tuatha de 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 Danin. (laughs) Here's my butchering (laughs) of Celtic. Sorry about that. (laughs) Um, But would you say that, or how do you think about like, as each individual person is kind of doing these journeyings, do you think that we're more likely to see or give attributes to the Fae of the mythology and folklore that we know? Or, you know, like, is a jinn going to come out of nowhere? Like, you know, you know what I mean? Like, what can you kind of expect? I also know that there's, we're talking about like compendiums of spirits. There's also the Goetia the lesser yep. King Solomon with, mm-hmm. you know, demonology, mm-hmm. like that kind of thing. Right. But if you don't know who the demons are, are you going to meet them? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, so right away, I think two things is that your experiences in the other world are going to depend and, and the spirits you encounter there is going to depend on your cultural background. Um, so, right. So like if you are, um, you know, if your ancestry comes from Africa, like you are probably more likely going to experience spirits from your ancestral lineage. Um, that's not to say that you won't experience like Celtic spirits or Norse spirits, because the other thing too, is it depends on where you live as well. That was Um, another aspect of the question I wanted to ask, you know, I mean, there are so much land folklore here in the, um, territory of the Dakota and Anishinaabe as well. 
Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's also going to depend on like the land you live on. um, But also it could also depend too on like what you're interested in. I mean, if you are interested in Greek mythology, um, then you're probably more likely going to encounter those because I think you're more open to those types of spirits. Um, Now, is it possible that like you... You, like you have no interest in demonology and you go into the other world and you encounter like a goetic spirit, um, possibly. Um, it depends if somebody like in your, maybe in your apartment building, there's a ceremonial right. magician working with Citri or something. <laughs> right. I think we're more likely to encounter spirits that we have some sort of affinity with. Um and that, not, that doesn't necessarily mean that we're only going to encounter spirits that are kindly, um, right? Like, so my, my affinity is more within, like, that English, British Isles kind of realm. And so, like, I always think about, oh, God, when am I going to, when am I finally going to have my encounter with the Red Cap, um, <laughs> you know, who's going to try to kill me? And But, um, you know, so it's we're open to that, to that realm um, of of spirits that maybe we have either like an ancestral or land-based affinity to. Totally. Well, and also um, you make a really good point in the exercises of the book to kind of tell people to do a lot of visioning and journaling and thinking through what, they would like out of mm-hmm. a relationship with spirits or out of a relationship with a familiar in uh-huh. your ritual to meet or draw a familiar spirit to you. You talk about kind of saying, this is what I can offer. This is what I'm looking for. And this is how long of a relationship I want to be in. Mm-hmm. You know, for some mm-hmm. people right now, we're obviously recording this in the midst of coronavirus, uh, social distancing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some people may just literally just want a spirit to uh, fend off any disease for the next two years. Yep. Or you might want a deep relationship with a familiar spirit that you can kind of grow together Mm -hmm. throughout your lifetime. And so then kind of translating that to actual spirit journeying into the pagan other worlds, thinking about what you seek when you go there mm-hmm. and right. think then thinking about like, okay, if I go there, who do I want to meet? Who do I want to be protected from mm-hmm. kind of thing? Yep, absolutely. So that's, um, I think initially when you are getting to know the other worlds, when you're journeying there, you maybe don't necessarily have like a game plan in mind. Um, And certainly it's not that you can't go to the other world just to explore. Um, But I think you're right. I have kind of an idea of like, what is it that you are looking to do? Um, So whether that is like performing some type of magic or communing with a certain spirit um, what is it that you're looking to do? It's kind of like, um, <laughs> this is a really odd comparison, but like, if I don't go into target with a game plan, I end up wandering around for hours and then either buying a ton of stuff or buying nothing. And then walking out and being like, 
what just happened? That's so um, real. <laughs> yeah. So it's better to kind of have an idea of, of what it is you want to achieve, who you want to talk to. Um, because also if you have that idea of who you want to talk to or engage with, then you're also less likely to bump into people you don't want to encounter. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. I think that that's really important. And I also just genuinely encourage most of my students, just fuck it, just experiment. Mm-hmm. You know, don't be so terrified. Like definitely like we're witches. And as I said earlier, there is a certain level of accepting responsibility as well as potential for danger involved in that. Mm-hmm. But also you're never going to know until you try. Yes. And if you have that experience, then there are things that you can do on the other side of that experience to heal. Mm -hmm. There are things that you can do to ward yourself. And I just always remind students or hell, anyone who asks me about like, how do I get a troublesome spirit out of my house? Or I think I have a demon in my house or something. I'm like, well, have you yelled at it yet? Because it came into your house in the material realm. Right. Way more power than it does in this plane. Mm-hmm. Um, so reminding yourself that when you come back, like you have a certain level of power. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I mean, that sounded very like, I don't know. Some people know this, others do not, but I moonlight at a bookstore, a pagan bookstore where sometimes I, uh, you know, answer questions and I'm yeah. always the girl because I don't look as like, I don't look as scary goth as a lot of the other people that work there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I'm always the one that people come to and are like, how do I get a demon out of my house? I'm really scared. And I'm like, oh my God, I love having this conversation with you. But you know that Adam over there like works with demons, right? He can tell you. (laughs) So anyway, that's a tangent. Get out Um, your pots and pans and just make a lot of noise. Right. All you ghosty goos, get out of my house. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of, we're slightly running out of time. What time is it now? All right. So just a few more questions for you, really. Um, the first being, what do you recommend for people who are maybe new to researching folklore you know, what resources do you use for your research? I know that we've talked about research together a lot because um, we're both mm-hmm. fairly academic people. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I personally would recommend readers to look through your bibliography because mm-hmm. you, you cite your sources, which is extremely appreciated. Thank um, you. Yeah. But what would you recommend for people? I would actually literally recommend bibliographies. <laughs> right. So like once you find once you find like a book that speaks to you, like if they're a good author and have a bibliography, um, which doesn't tell you at all how like much of a stickler I am for citing sources. Um, <laughs> Not at all. Look to their bibliography. Um, what are the books that they pulled from and follow that trail. Um, it's it's always really interesting what you end up finding. Um, but I also recommend looking at, like, if you know your ancestry, 
look to the folklore of your ancestral lineage. Also look to the folklore of where you live. Um, So if you live uh, like in a particular region, um, does that region have any type of folklore regarding like the spirits that, that live there? Um, And I think those are the two places that I I recommend the most um, is, is the bibliography is looking at ancestral sources and also the sources from the land that you are based on. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I also just will give a shout out to one of my favorite podcasts, Lore. Absolutely. I love Lore. Lore is amazing. And he does incredible. He actually has a research team, which tells you something about the quality of the podcast that it is. Um, But, you know, looking to his sources as well. Another thing that I um, do and also notice that you do in this book uh, is looking to witch trials. Yes. Which is a little bit controversial, right? Because Mm -hmm. most of the people, if not all of the people who were burned as witches at the time weren't. They were Mm -hmm. unpopular people or inconvenient people that often the leading classes wanted to get out of the way. Mm-hmm. So what they confessed under torture isn't necessarily super, you know, legitimate or I don't want to say legitimate because sometimes people did have, you know, like confessed to folkloric mm-hmm. ideas and conceptions under torture, but, you know, it's not always the best, but... I do know that particularly in traditional witchcraft, the witch trial transcripts have been used to sort of create new rituals almost or breathe new life into Mm -hmm. rituals. And can you just speak to that for a minute? Yeah. So this, I mean, this does come up a lot. It's like how, how accurate were these confessions? And you're right. Most of the time, if not all of the time, they were fabricated by people who were being tortured, um, who were afraid of being killed. Um, You know, if you think about, God, I'm in this space where um, I'm being asked these questions and being tortured, like, if there's any possibility for me to escape this, then I'm going to do whatever it takes. And we also know, too, that even in places where, like, they weren't, quote-unquote, tortured, um, they were still being subjected to things like sleep deprivation uh, and things that actually really are torture. Um, But what what I always encourage people to think about is that both persecutors and accused were likely pulling from preconceived ideas about what it means to be a witch, what it means to practice witchcraft. Um, and there's been a lot of excellent research on, on that um, specific idea that like, yes, like the learned elite who were, you know, looking into like demonology and things were interjecting their own beliefs they were asking leading questions but Mm -hmm. there's also a lot of room in there where 
the accused were actually mining their own personal experiences, their own ideas and beliefs regarding witchcraft and magic and weaving those into the story as well. Weaving their own fears mm-hmm. into it as well. You know, um, right. I, I also wonder to what extent the cunning folk uh, mm-hmm. had a role in the witch trials or if cunning folk were, you know, likely to be targeted as mm-hmm. well. I suppose right. if, if the craze was really crazy and, you know, maybe somebody, a cunning, cunning man or woman pissed off a magistrate, right. like then obviously I think that they could be considered witches. Right. Kind of like how useful you are. And if you stop being so useful, then you're just a loose end. Um, mm-hmm. but, but we can look to these trial transcripts with the knowledge and understanding that these things didn't necessarily happen, but that they're tapping into and further generating a body of folklore and that folklore. And this is what I really like to point out to people when they're kind of like, well, that's stupid is that that folklore went on to inspire people like Margaret Murray who then went on to inspire people like Gerald Gardner, who then went on to inspire more and more people. And now here we are with our modern witchcraft practices that whether you know it or not, have a lot of key details that are based in the folklore that came directly from those trial transcripts. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) um, So when you look at it that way, then it's like, Oh wow. Yeah. Um, and I, I conceptualize witchcraft as a living, breathing entity, as a body of folklore, as a narrative that has been growing since the dawn of time and new things get added and certain things maybe get taken out. Um, and we're all a part of it. We all experience it in different ways. Um, but when the witch trials happened, when those confessions happened, they were a part of, they were taking from and adding to that narrative. Exactly. Um, exactly. And then you can also look at, I mean, even the Malleus Maleficarum, mm-hmm. for example, as, all right, there's actually a lot of folklore embedded in here. And then what mm-hmm. are they in a way, what is the thinly veiled resource or sources that right. you know, they're referring to? Um, oh my gosh, we could just nerd out about research and academics all day. Yes. I really <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Same here. Um, so, but I think that we are running out of time, unfortunately. So where can listeners find you? Obviously, you know, you can purchase The Crooked Path, uh, pretty much wherever you find books, right? Or wherever you find books about witchcraft. Yep. <laughs> um, exactly. Where else can people find you, Keldon? They can find me. Um, the primary social media platform that I'm most active on is Instagram. And you can find me at Keldon Mercury. Um, you can also find me on YouTube under the same name. Um, and then you can find me at my blog, which is by Acme and Sting. Um, and that is hosted on the Pathios Pagan channel. Um, so those are primary places where you'll find me. 
Um, unless you want to like go out into the dark woods at midnight, you might find me there. But yes, we could maybe conjure you. Um, <laughs> all right. And then do you have anything else that's kind of coming up that you can talk about? I understand often authors can't talk about their next book until a certain point. Yeah, no, I'm actually pretty open right now with the fact that I am currently working on my second book. Um, so this is a book that is actually completely devoted to the idea of the witch's Sabbath. So if yes. you if you are interested in spirit work, going into the other world, uh, and the folklore of witchcraft um, as it developed over time and into the modern age, um, this is definitely a book that you're going to want to check out. Um, it's I, can't, I very, personally can't wait. Well, I think you'll be very excited because it's very... Uh, research heavy. There's going to be a very long bibliography. <laughs> um, so also if you're really into like footnotes and citations, like get ready. So here for it. Um, <laughs> and I heard a little scuttlebutt and I can cut this out of the podcast if it's not true, but I heard a little bit of scuttlebutt that you had created an Oracle deck with someone? Is there ever going to be a reprinting of that? What does that look like? Yes. So, um, gosh, a few years back now, I co-created an Oracle deck with my good friend, Maggie, who is the artist at Witch and Moon. Um, she came to me and was like, hey, I'm thinking about creating an Oracle deck that's based off of... Um, concepts from traditional witchcraft, would you be interested in being the writer for the deck? And I was like, uh, hell yeah. Um, so we created a 28 card Oracle deck, um, that is based on folklore and history and modern practice. Um, and so she did the artwork, which is just amazing. I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I also really love her artwork. It's all over my house. Um, Can attest the artwork is stunning. She is awesome. And I love how she has her very, like she has her own unique style, which I really always appreciate when artists have like a style that's very unique in their own. Mm -hmm. um, but anyways, I could gush about her forever. Um, so the Oracle <laughs> deck, um, we do it in kind of limited print printed runs. Um, and that's because we do it based on pre-orders. That way we don't have to like scramble to like find the money to print it. Um, so that comes with its own like pros and cons. Cons being that it takes longer for us to, to print them because we have to kind of wait until we have a set number of people who are interested. Um, but we are looking at doing our third printing in the near future. Um, so, yeah, I can give you the link to um, our newsletter that you can sign up for. Um, I think it's a newsletter. It basically just tells you, like, information about the deck. And yeah, there's basically, like, a spot on her website, <laughs> yeah. I think, where you can, yeah. like, put in your email address and stuff. I, yeah. I did it, so, like, I'm hoping to get one. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. So that is exciting. It'll be cool if we are able to do a third printing because um, I think it just gets better every time. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking a little bit of a, a jaunt on the heathen's journey with me today. Oh, thank you for having me. 
I'm so excited for your next book and I'm very thrilled to call you a friend. So thank you for Aww, stopping thank by. Thank you so much. Thank you for being my friend. <laughs> Aw, love fast. All right. Well, I'll talk to you later, Kelton. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. Isn't he a delight? I know I had a lot of fun with the conversation and I hope you had fun listening. I'm continuing the Rune Altar challenge over on Instagram. Rune Altars give us a touch point, a place to get to know the rune energy and a structure to dive deep into the study of the runes one by one. Plus, when you share your altars with others, it may help them to develop their own relationship with the runes. This is all on Instagram, so make sure you're following me there. My username is at northern.lights.witch. Make sure to tag me in your photos and use hashtag InstaRunes to share your altar with others. If you love this podcast, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Share with your friends. You can also follow me on Instagram at northern.lights.witch or on Twitter at North light witch. If you would like to book a reading with me, you can do so on my website, northernlightswitch.com. If you would like to support the podcast, consider becoming a patron. You'll get access to the monthly uh, dark moon ritual guides, runescopes for each zodiac season, as well as the Northern Lights Coven Discord, and much more. As always, if you would like to read the transcript from this episode. Uh, That is a public post on my Patreon as well as on my website, northernlightswitch.com. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Stay weird. Bye-bye.